0: So, Satan for Kids, awful. Applehead Dolls, super awful. (laughs) Brainwashing is a Cinch, is just hilarious. The Fallout Shelter Handbook is awful.
1: Let's not forget Be Bold with Bananas. Oh,
0: we almost forgot Be Bold with Bananas, which was written by the Banana Control Board, which, by the way, is a British thing. (laughs) I thought it was South Africa. Was it South Africa? I don't remember. Was not America. I will look at it. I don't have it in front of me. Be Bold with Bananas. And the pictures in this thing are so phallic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like you can't even look at these pictures without just no
1: one can a
2: look at this post without laughing to death. You're listening to Anything but Silent from the British Library with me, Cleo Lascarin. Our theme today is when books raise eyebrows. And if you didn't already know, libraries can be pretty controversial places. In this episode, we'll be exposing ourselves to smut, censorship, and the downright silly as we take a romp through the shelves to work out what should and shouldn't be on our reading lists. Coming up, we're going to be speaking with Jody Ginsberg from Index on Censorship on why it's more important than ever to give oppressed authors and artists a voice. Plus, we'll be unearthing some very rare and important erotica at the British Library. Stay tuned. But to set us on our way, I want to introduce the two voices you just heard at the start of the show. Mary Kelly and Holly Hibner, two public librarians from Plymouth District Library in Michigan. If you go to Offlibrarybooks.net, there are
0: categories. Um, and there are things like critters and working 9 to 5, parenting, parent-teacher, I think, is one of them. And so, I don't know, I have some of my favorite ones. What's the, what's the food one called? It's called You Ate What? Yeah. And so there's a book in there, like a mayonnaise cookbook. The pictures are awful. Oh, there's a hot dog cookbook in that category with with hot them. dog loaf, like three, three versions, recipes, three of versions hot of hot dog loaf in the hot dog cookbook. I mean, that might have been cool in the '60s when I don't know hot dogs were a gourmet item. I don't. I don't know. In 2019, I'm gonna say that the hot dog cookbook
2: and the mayonnaise cookbook are
0: are just not that exciting.
2: Mary and Holly are a longtime duo who practice an art they call weeding a process of ridding library shelves of old and irrelevant items to make space for books that might be more appropriate. Weeding is a normal part of collection development in public libraries with limited space. But, as we just heard, Mary and Holly have taken it one step further by blogging about the questionable and or amusing books they find. Their site, Awful Library Books, has gained them somewhat of a cult following over the past 10 years. Awful Library Books
1: started kind of on a couple of places. Holly and I were looking to expand our skill set on the computer because trying to keep up with technology is actually one of the primary objectives of librarians we want to keep current. But at the same time, we were in Metro Detroit and a good 20% of the community we were working in was thrown out of work and we had financial crisis. I would say probably 8 out of 10 people that walked in through the library were looking for jobs, trying to settle Or
0: closures, bankruptcy. It was a rough time in Detroit in
1: 2009. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it was bad. And most of us got really frustrated because during these times of crisis, you'll see different materials in the library go versus other. In other words, Detroit people were not checking out big holiday uh, travel travel guides yeah, yeah, or that. But the bankruptcy materials, the job finding... And what we found was when we couldn't fulfill an order, we were going into libraries uh, through interlibrary loan and finding so many things that were out of date, they were almost hurtful to They the were people. like
0: resume books that told you to put your your age and your weight and your marital status
1: on your resume. <laughs> Something that everybody would just cringe at.
0: And we just kept one-upping each other, like, you got to see this. Can you believe this library has this on their shelves? And we like, these are awful. These
2: are awful. Over and over, these are awful. <laughs> Mary and Holly got competitive, trying to top each other with increasingly awful finds, and decided that they needed to share these with the world. And if you look at the Awful Library Books site, materials range from books on Bigfoot's ability to mind control to A Woman's Guide to Fixing the Car. The posts on the blog form a genuinely hilarious and at times worrying social history, presented via the medium of dodgy book covers and pithy summaries. Over the past decade, they've built up a collection of thousands of posts.
1: Part of awful library books is it started out, like I said, with uh, Holly and I just putting up, you know, funny pictures because we were trying to figure out how to do more web-oriented.
0: We wanted to learn WordPress, basically. (laughs) Yeah. And we thought, isn't this funny? But we get submissions from all over Over the the world world world. now. People, you know, find weird things in their collection and they're like, well, I know where to send this. (laughs) So some of the other things that are like criteria for awfulness, (laughs) sometimes it's the cover art. Um, There's a great book in the pet category called Glamour Puss. (laughs) And it's a book, okay, I can't even make this up. This is a book of pictures of cats wearing wigs. (laughs) And so there's a cat on the cover of this book wearing a wig. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Um, But the title is Glamour Puss Kitty Wigs. (laughs) So that's another of my favorites. And it's Um, not
1: like that maybe there is an audience for that. (laughs) I don't know them, but... (laughs) We use these examples as fun and diversions, but there's a real serious point about this. And, for example, when many people have a medical diagnosis, they come to the library to research it. If you bring them out a book about breast cancer from the early 80s as a possible resource, you can't even imagine because most of the themes are like get ready to die. And we all know that you can survive breast cancer because... In the 90s, they made some real big strides, and even into this decade. So, medical information definitely we want. To have the best, most current, most scientifically accurate.
0: As reference librarians, we like to think of ourselves as bartenders. (laughs) Um, So we counsel people sort of through their difficult situation. So when they come to us and they say, you know, we have to put my mother in a memory care unit because she has Alzheimer's. So we're going to give them good, helpful information about caring for someone with Alzheimer's. At the same time, they need to get a power of attorney for their parents. So we're going to give them financial information. Yes, and help them sell their mother's house and all the things that go with that one situation, the more we can put them at ease and help them to say that the information is out there and we're going to get it to you, it takes a load off of them a little bit. We Mm -hmm. earn their trust. And so they'll come back to the library, hopefully, when it's not such a dire situation.
2: (laughs) Holly's point about earning trust is an important one. And cultivating spaces open to different viewpoints and ranges of information is a theme we're going to visit at various points in this episode. For Mary and Holly, having room to represent a broad stroke is the key.
0: Hoarding is not collection development. We want to be really careful about the word hoarding because we're not talking about, you know, clinical hoarding. We're sensitive to that. People who are so... I don't know, connected to the book as a thing. Libraries are not museums. We don't collect books because they're books. We collect the information that's in the book, and we provide access to information. Mm-hmm. Hoarders, in the way we use the term, are people who are so sentimental about books as objects that they can't bear to get rid of anything, and they just You know, somebody might need it someday or it's just, it's a book, it's sacred. (laughs) Um, Hoarding is not collection development. Collection development is more purposeful. It's more careful. It's more intentional.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if you remember uh, Marie Kondo. She was trying to talk about simplifying your life and she's talking about using books as not just the objects. I mean, if they bring you
3: what you need, joy,
1: (laughs) then collect them to death. But what she was talking about, when you simplify, if you're not reading them actively... Do you really need them? (laughs) We
0: want our collections to bring people joy, if you want to use that term.
2: Just listening to Mary and Holly, I have no doubt that they bring joy to all aspects of their work. But surely with great weeding also comes great responsibility. Is it possible to cross the line?
0: So there's a very specific difference between weeding and censorship and we should probably talk about the difference censorship is when you purposely omit things from the collection because you don't like its content or you purposely and intentionally make it unavailable to people maybe due to you know controversy of the subject whatever it is you did it on purpose you made information unavailable to other people Weeding is when maybe you had the item in your collection, but you know no one's used it for years. The information's getting old. Maybe you're going to replace it with something newer. So that isn't censorship or deliberately leaving out. We're just trying to include
1: more, if that makes sense. We want people to question their resources. Uh, in fact, I almost cringe every day when somebody says, well, I heard it on the Internet. It must be true. And <laughs> <laughs> just like, no because we're in a climate now of abundant information, the job of the librarian now is to separate the wheat from the chaff, especially.
0: You know, we want to know where the information exists on all sides of an issue. We make no judgment. When people ask us a question at the reference desk, whatever it is, we're going to find their answer as it suits them, as they need it to be in that moment. Mm-hmm. So libraries as neutral spaces, yes, all information is fair game. I'd honestly don't care what people are looking for, I'll just help them find it. And if I can bring it back around to Offa Library Books, that's, that's another one of the points of our website, is to point out to people what the perspective is when you have these items on your shelf. Here's what one half of the population sees when they look at that, and here's what the other viewpoint sees when they look at that. Oh, God, we have thousands of posts, and I'm trying to, you know... I know, 10 years worth... Uh-huh. Um. When cat? Why cats paint? Yeah. And dancing with now, cats. Now, see, I've both had good. a
1: lot of blowback on that one because well, they're humor books. They're yeah. not meant
0: to be. Yeah, serious. They're still funny. The There's, pictures are funny.
1: Um. There was like cooking for your cat, and it read like it was about cooking cats.
0: You know, <laughs> not. Just when we think we have seen it all, and like the website has to die at some point, right? We will have reached the end of the awfulness. No, the bell curve just (laughs) shifts.
1: (laughs) And I think that's the other part we want to point out to librarians as well as the public is tastes change, style changes, science changes. So the library has to change too.
2: Mary Kelly and Holly Hibner, the Mary Condos of librarianship. If you want to read more from them, you can browse and submit at awfullibrarybooks.net. Whilst Mary and Holly have talked us through their views on weeding, this isn't what happens in all libraries. As the National Library of the UK, the British Library works very differently and actually has a legal obligation to collect and preserve as much as possible. The British Library collects every single print publication in the UK and material published digitally under a system called Legal Deposit. This has been part of English law since 1662 and is applied to the collections that the British Library now curates since 1710. Legal Deposit covers everything from books, journals, magazines, maps, and even websites. And as you can imagine, over time, the British Library has amassed a significant collection of treasures, first editions, rare and beautiful items, archives, and the surprising and wonderful. Of course, some of these items have raised a few questions and a few eyebrows over what should and shouldn't be made available to the public. So this is an
4: early 18th century edition of Fanny Hill, or Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, and it is considered to be the first pornographic novel written in the English language. This particular copy comes complete with rather erotic engravings that accompany the text, and John Cleland wrote Fanny Hill whilst in debtor's prison. For corrupting the king's <laughs> subjects but this of course just made the book even more popular and lots of pirated copies sprung up as well
2: to help guide me through the british library's proverbial knicker drawer i went to meet with a curator who's been working up close with some of the more questionable items maddie smith she introduced me to a collection previously kept away from the public the private case
4: So the private case is a collection of printed books that was established in the 1850s, in the middle of the 19th century, to segregate material that was deemed too obscene to be kept in the general collections. And its name derives from the fact that the collection was kept in particular cases in the Keeper of Printed Books office. And the definition of obscene includes sexually explicit material, that is most of the content in the private case, but it also includes material that was controversial for perhaps religious reasons or for including explicit
2: scenes of drug taking and things like that as well. Since 1857, a series of obscenity laws known as the Obscene Publications Act have governed what can and can't be published in England and Wales. This means that a lot of the books that are held in the private case would have been published illegally, so it probably wouldn't be in the publisher's best interests to submit these books through legal deposit. I asked Maddie how the British Library got their hands on these once-banned books. The
4: books within the private case didn't always come in via legal deposit. Ah, okay. (laughs) So um, the books in the private case also came in via donations. So the biggest donation that we got into the private case was in 1900 by a Victorian book collector and gentleman called Henry Spencer Ashby. And he collected a fine library, but he also (laughs) collected a very fine kind of sub-library of erotic material. So he didn't keep it in his house, he kept it in his rooms at the Inns of Court to keep it away from his wife. But when he died in 1900, he um, wanted his library to come to the British Museum under the agreement that the British Museum also accept his erotic books as well. <laughs> so they had no choice. So I don't know whether or not it was something they were actively right. really wanting to collect, but it came in anyway. And what they a had legacy. To, yes, and they had to find room for it, so it, most of it went in the private case.
2: After years of being hidden from public view, the private case has recently been digitized and made available online. And while you might wonder what significance some risque literature dating back from as far as the 17th century might have today, it seems there's actually a lot we can learn.
4: Although this material was out there, it was hard to acquire at the time. It was sold kind of in dodgy bookshops and (laughs) under the counter. And also a lot of it was destroyed you know I mean it's not the sort of thing that people would keep over time and to be honest the private case is arguably the world's best collection of forbidden books or clandestine material in the world and if we didn't have this then that would be a really major kind of portion of history Mm -hmm. that we just that we just haven't collected it's only due to legal deposit and due to those key donations that came in to make the private case what it is today that we have this record of erotic materials that was around at the time. In an unrelated way, you have museums and libraries today collecting materials that's relating to Brexit and other current issues. And although, you know, we don't see this material as kind of, you know, historically valuable or anything like that, in the future, people looking back at current issues of today, that sort of thing will be, you know, really valuable. And so it's important to do. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Maddie, can you tell us about some of the juiciest things
4: from this collection? Well, there were many highlights to the private case. Some of the books that I've got out to look at today include a copy of Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies. This is a very rare publication that was issued yearly. And it is essentially a directory of prostitutes that um, operated in Covent Garden in Georgian times in London. So
2: it's essentially like a catalogue? Essentially a catalogue.
4: Yes, not quite an Argos catalogue, but a catalogue nonetheless. We also have two editions of a, an erotic novel printed in the 1950s. Um, this is called The Story of O, or the Histoire Doll, as it was originally printed in France in 1954, and it was also printed in English some five or six years later, which we also have in front of us today. It recounts the sexual experiences of a woman called... and she was a young female fashion photographer and she ended up belonging to a secret sexual society that focused on BDSM, bondage and other kind of fetish-related activities and it was once described as the smuttiest French novel ever written and I think for French novels, I think that's quite an achievement really, isn't it? (laughs) Um, So the author was the writer and journalist Anne Desclos And she wrote it as a response to a challenge by her partner, who was also a writer. He was dismissive of the idea that women could write erotica, and she was determined to prove him wrong. And prove him wrong, she definitely did. It's (laughs) one of the most um, debated kind of erotic novels from France, and it was banned until relatively
2: recently as well. So... Yeah, I think she did quite well in the end. That seems sort of surprising because I think that today erotica is something we maybe associate with women.
4: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. You have things like Fifty Shades of Grey, which is definitely aimed at a much more female market. But at the time, erotica was for men. I mean, just as pornography online these days is... For men. For men. This was essentially the pornography of the time. Women feature in it, but women definitely do not have any agency. Um, questions of consent are almost non-existent at the time, yeah. it just wasn't a concern. So women definitely feature, <laughs> it's just not quite in the same way as they maybe would with modern-day erotica. Yeah. Right. And have you read the whole thing? <laughs> no, I haven't read the whole thing. <laughs> as a curator of material in the private case, it would take me a rather long time to read all of the content in the private case and I have other <laughs> other, other responsibilities as well, so no, I haven't read it. <laughs>
2: Okay, that's fair <laughs> So I'm just going to read you a quick uh, excerpt from this. Would she ever dare tell him that no pleasure, no joy, no figment of her imagination could ever compete with the happiness she felt at the way he used her with such utter freedom? At the notion that he could do anything with her, and that there was no limit, no restriction in the manner with which, on her body, he might search for pleasure. (laughs) It sounds like this is perhaps better written than Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes. (laughs) A little bit more sophisticated. And so to access these books today, what does one have to do? Today, they're
4: fully catalogued, just like any other printed book in the library. They're freely accessible. People can call them up to the rare books and music reading room. Do you have to sit at the special desks? You have to sit at the special desks in some instances, but only because some of the material is particularly fragile. Okay. So it's more from a conservation point of view (laughs) rather than a censorship point of view. This wasn't always the case, of course. Access to the private case was heavily restricted for most of its duration, right. and they had to provide a very scholarly, serious reason for wanting to see <laughs> these works. Fair enough. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. It's not just any smut you could pick up
4: on the street. <laughs> this is rare, important smut. As as time went on in the 20th century, people did make the point that. If people wanted to access erotic content, they wouldn't necessarily come to the British Library or the British Museum Reading Rooms in order to do so. And then perhaps it made more sense to either A, desegregate these works or B, fully catalogue them and make the whole collection available.
2: That's a really fair point. Yes, (laughs) It's not where I'd start. Exactly. (laughs) Awesome. So this collection, as well as being available to call up to the Reading Rooms, is available online, digitised
4: Yes, so this year, through a collaboration with Gail Sengage, the private case has been digitised in its entirety and is available as part of their gender and sexuality programme online. This means that it is available to consult um, in the British Library's reading rooms in both um, St Pancras and up in Boston Spa. Okay. And it's also available via subscription through university libraries and other institutions. After seven years, all of those digitised images we'll be able to ingest into our own catalogue and it will be freely available
2: from everywhere. So then from the comfort of your own home. From the comfort can... of your own
4: home, you can access this content, yes. Awesome. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm sure people will be waiting. Yes. It was such a treat speaking with Maddie and viewing the items from the private case. Some of these items are so interesting and so old and give us such a snapshot into a period of time and a segment of literature that I wasn't super familiar with. After the interview took place, it occurred to me that through Legal Deposit, the British Library must still be collecting new erotica. I emailed a member of the team for clarification. They responded, The British Library continues to receive UK published and distributed erotica through Legal Deposit, including photographic books, novels, top shelf magazines, erotic comics, graphic novels, etc. Material tends to be stored separately, owing to its vulnerability to theft. So there you have it, the British Library, with one of the finest and most up-to-date collections of erotica in the world. But remember, it's not just porn that features on the banned books list. At the British Library, we also have records of censorship throughout history, including things like the Lord Chamberlain's plays, chronicling state censorship in the theatre right up until 1968 in the UK, and first edition copies of James Joyce's Ulysses, banned for explicit sexuality and graphic depictions of bodily functions. Sadly, restriction on free expression is something authors and artists are still facing today. And all around the world, many are facing censorship, even persecution, for releasing their work. One body fighting this is the Index on Censorship. We spoke to their CEO, Jody Ginsberg, to get the bigger picture. A lot of the
5: time, art should be provocative. It should force us to think. And sometimes that means that it might push us emotionally in ways that are quite difficult, but that's okay. My name is Jodie Ginsberg. I'm the chief executive of an organisation called Index on Censorship. Index has been going for nearly 50 years. We were established in 1972 to publish work by and about censored writers and artists and anyone facing threats to their freedom of expression. We publish a quarterly magazine, and we've published writers like Nadine Gordimer, Vaclav Havel, Salman Rushdie, more recently Philip Pullman, Margaret Atwood. And in addition to publishing our quarterly magazine, which is available in thousands of libraries worldwide, we also campaign on behalf of censored writers and artists. I'm a journalist by profession. I have always, always, from a very, very young age, been interested in the power of words and storytelling. And the idea that someone might come in and tell me what I can and can't read, I find deeply upsetting. I think partly that's a kind of rebel in me that doesn't like to be told what to do. So the idea that someone would say, you can't read that book or you can't watch that particular play probably would only make me want to read it more. And in fact, that's the irony about censorship, is that often censorship has completely the opposite intention. So you tell someone that they can't read something and then they want to read it more. I remember being in Moscow just after the Iron Curtain came down and talking to this amazing English professor who said that she learnt to read English upside down because you weren't allowed to have copies, for example, of 1984. You couldn't have 1984. So when you got one of these banned copies, you had to read it as fast as possible. So she and her husband would read it together, but in order to be able to read it in the time required, he would have it in front of him and she would read effectively over his shoulder upside down so that they could read and get through it really quickly. That's how important it is and was to people to have access to information and literature and ideas that somebody told them that they couldn't have. Index on Censorship was born from a request that came from Soviet dissident writers and intellectuals and they really wanted to understand what it was that their counterparts in the West could do to support them. And the founders of INDEX, who include the poet Stephen Spender, felt that the important thing for these individuals was to give them back their voice. You know, what drives people is the ability to express themselves, and these writers, like Solzhenitsyn, were having that right taken away from them. So that's why, initially, INDEX existed to give them back their voice through publishing this magazine that published the voices that were being silenced and censored. And we continue to do that because in many countries in the world that continues to be a challenge. So we see censorship rife in traditional authoritarian regimes, unfortunately still in Russia, actually, but also places like Egypt, for example, Iran, Ethiopia, those kinds of traditional forms of censorship that you would expect from the state. So in other words the government saying we don't want anybody who's critical of us to publish things, or religious authorities, for example, saying we don't want people to express other beliefs other than the belief in our religion, or certainly not to criticise our religion. Those kinds of traditional forms of censorship. What's evolved over time are more insidious kinds of censorship, a kind of online censorship that comes from the mob getting together and deciding that certain views are not acceptable. And that's a kind of indirect censorship, if you like. It's a group of people getting together and deciding that certain ideas are beyond the pale or certain opinions are beyond the pale. And that's something that really concerns us.
2: One particular group under threat from mob censorship are authors writing children's and young adults' literature. We spoke to Gail Pittman, whose book, This Day in June, A Kid's Story About Pride, has experienced frequent challenges since its publication in 2014.
3: So my name is Gail Pittman, and by day, I'm a college professor. I teach at a community college in Sacramento, and in kind of the corners of my day and at night, I'm a children's author. I write mostly picture books, mostly LGBTQ-themed But I've also written some middle-grade nonfiction, and I've written some YA nonfiction. This Day June was published by a small publishing house, so it really didn't get a lot of airtime in the media. It wasn't until about a year after publication, a little more than a year, I guess, that I got a, a message, a Facebook message, from someone who I'd never met before, who said, do you know that your book is being banned? And I was like, no, (laughs) I haven't heard anything about this. And that was really the first major challenge, at least that I know of, to this day in June, was the one that happened in Hood County, Texas, at their public library. And, you know, I really got to see just the really awful underbelly of censorship. You know, just the anger and the hatred and the vitriol that was in that community. The library director at the time was getting hate mail. She was getting death threats. She was, I mean, she was harassed. Her kid was harassed at school. They ended up moving. I mean, it was just an awful experience.
2: In this case, the local library patrons fought the censors and succeeded in keeping This Day in June on the shelves. But as recent as a few months ago, Gail's book was burnt by a religious leader in Iowa in a shocking Facebook Live video.
3: Watching somebody burn your book I don't know, it felt like a kick in the stomach, quite honestly. I mean, it just was one of the most frightening things I'd ever seen. It's like, what are we, a Nazi Germany? Somebody's burning books on Facebook Live? This is ridiculous.
2: The silver lining in both of these events was that activism was generated in support of Gail's book and its themes. In both cases, the library communities beat the censors and replaced the ashen copies. But the mob mentality seems to be an ever-present threat. One of the
5: recent and quite disturbing developments is often about deciding what a young adult author can write about and that's not just what you might expect in other words committed christians lobbying against lgbt works it's often more complicated than that so we've seen a number of recent examples where somebody might be writing a fant- a pure fantasy Story, So not something that's directly relatable to modern society and deciding that that's unacceptable because it pursues racist tropes, even though none of the characters in that are directly comparable to race groups that currently exist. So there was an example of a young adult author who was writing a fantasy book about witches, for example, and the online community railed against it even pre-publication. And what happens then is those books often get very low ratings on things like Goodreads, and it means that that book doesn't get disseminated. Or even worse, as the case happened recently where someone was writing a book about, again, a a fantasy book, she got so much pressure that she decided, despite the fact that she had a contract to write the book and it it was ready for publication, she decided to pull the book from publication.
2: With pressure on all sides, should YA writers feel the need to be more careful? Well,
5: if I think about how I evolved a lot of my ideas and thoughts as a child, I was a really avid library goer. I remember going every Saturday and it introduced me to so many different worlds and different ideas that I could never possibly have accessed otherwise. It unleashed lots of ideas and, and thoughts and also made me, in many cases, angry or worried even. And that's something else that I think is really important. A rounded education also involves being challenged by things. And if you are, in effect, sanitising the kind of literature that people can read, you're giving them a much narrower experience of the world, potentially, and you're preventing that unleashing of imagination that I think is quite crucial to a much more rounded and fulfilled adulthood and a much more rounded society. I am by nature a positive person, so if you ask me if there's something that I'm hopeful for, I am really hopeful for the future, in part because I think there will always be people who want to challenge the status quo, and who want to think about things in a new way, who want to do art in a new way, who want to write a novel in a new way. I'm really excited that poetry seems to be making a comeback, and spoken word poetry, the whole festival's uh, flourishing to do with books and literature and if you think 10 years ago when people were talking about ebooks and they thought this would be the sort of death of the printed word or the bookshops would be the death of libraries they're all still going and I think it's actually a really positive time and we need to keep making the case for the positive nature of art rather than always seeing it as something that needs to be controlled.
2: Jodi Ginsberg from Index on Censorship. Every year, Index on Censorship works as part of an international coalition to present Banned Books Week, a time to celebrate authors who've been stifled, in partnership with libraries, publishers, and schools. That's coming up in September, from the 22nd to the 28th, and the British Library will also be getting involved. You can check out our website for more information on events. And I think it's so important that we all celebrate the freedom to read. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a rating and review. You can also get in touch by emailing podcast at bl.uk or on social media at British Library using the hashtag AnythingButSilent. but silent. And from book weeding in Michigan to the censoring of LGBTQ plus young adult fiction in Iowa, this episode has traveled around the US. Anything But Silent is supported by the Eccles Center for American Studies at the British Library. You can find out more by searching for the Eccles Center online. We'll be back in two weeks' time with the next installment of our accompanying mini-series, Joining the Library, where we invite guest voices to talk about the literary moments that have made them, and library books they've struggled to take back. Until next time, from me, Cleo Laskarin, thanks for listening.